0: Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence. Hello and welcome to Compliance Clarified, a podcast for risk and compliance professionals brought to you by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence. Each week we discuss news stories and topical issues from our journalists and analysts in the United States, Europe, Asia and Australia. I'm Alexander Robson. Managing Editor, coming to you today from London. I'm speaking to Lindsay Rogerson, Senior Editor for Regulatory Risk, about whistleblowing in financial services and Lindsay's reporting of how protected disclosures on financial wrongdoing are handled by the UK Financial Conduct Authority. Hello, Lindsay. Hi, Alex. You recently got an apology from the FCA for a whistleblower. What can you tell us about that?
1: So it's quite a weird one, really, um, but very important nonetheless. Uh, In August, the Financial Services Complaints Commissioner, which is the body in the UK that handles complaints against both the PRA, the Prudential Regulation Authority, and the FCA from firms, members of the public, etc. It published a ruling and it included a phrase about an individual not being entitled to whistleblower protection by the regulator because they had allowed their employer to know their identity. Now, now this is just wrong. Um, nowhere in the UK law, the Public Interest Disclosure Act, which is 1998, is there a caveat um, for a, a protection around depending on identity so it was it was really concerning to me that this statement had been made in that decision notice because the vast majority of people who make protected disclosures to the FCA provide their name. So as I said, it was really important to have this corrected. The complaints commissioner told me that she was quoting the FCA in her judgment. Um, there is a separate issue about why as a lawyer, she didn't think she had a duty to at least tell the FCA they had it wrong. But that's for another day. So after checking with two um, organisations, both of which work to help whistleblowers uh, or those individuals who are considering making protected disclosures, either to their employer or the regulator, I checked with them that my reading of the law was correct. It was. So I contacted the FCA and lo and behold, within two hours, they'd replied saying it was an error in the wording. And they were, of course, uh, the, the regulator did not think that protection depended on anonymity and they were going to apologise to the whistleblower, which they did. However, what remains to be addressed in all this is the issue that the whistleblower had actually complained about in the first place, and that was that they were being victimised by their employer and they wanted the regulator to make it stop. And this is the issue of what the FCA is doing to protect whistleblowers from detriment. That is a recurring theme um, that we've been reporting on for, what, about six years now?
0: Yes. Well, I mean, I think the... the, the first case involving whistleblowing that you covered for regulatory intelligence was um, that of John Banerjee against Royal Bank of Canada back in 2018. And for those who don't know Banerjee, he was an FX trader who reported serious concerns about the bank's annual attestation process. He was eventually awarded $1.1 million by the Employment Tribunal in September 2021. But as you've reported... Plenty of unanswered questions remain.
1: Yes, Alex. As you said, an employment tribunal decided Banerjee was unfairly dismissed after he raised concerns about the RBC's annual attestation process. Basically, there were a number of broken links, which meant that anyone that was clicking the box to say that they had read all the documents that they're supposed to so that they can stay within the regulations and the law couldn't possibly have been doing it. We discussed this case before in episode eight of series five, so I won't take much too much time on the details. But what Banerjee and all the whistleblowing cases we cover at Reg Intelligence um, have in common is that the whistleblower raised concerns about regulatory and compliance failure, and then they were basically bullied out of their job. The other thing they have in common is a lack of action on the part of the FCA, or to be fair, an apparent lack of action, um, at least. The judge in Banerjee's case questioned the honesty and competence of very senior figures at RBC. And most critically in terms of financial services rules, he found RBC had unfairly dismissed him. A number of those individuals were and still are holders of senior management functions for the bank or they hold SMF status at another regulated institution. I've asked the FCA repeatedly over the years, If it is investigating any individual at RBC based on the judgment in this case. I've also asked if RBC is under investigation. Um, I saw a letter in 2019 signed by Mark Stewart um, who was then a director of enforcement which uh, said that the bank was being investigated but since then nothing. Why does this matter? This matters because of um, the FCA's whistleblowing rules and in particular 3.9 of those rules, CISC 18 as they're called, it states, the FCA would regard as a serious matter any evidence that a firm had acted to the detriment of a whistleblower. Such evidence could call into question the fitness and propriety of the firm or relevant members of its staff and could therefore, if relevant, affect the firm's continuing satisfaction of threshold condition 5, suitability, or for an improved person or a certificated employee, their status as such. So, to recap, RBC has been found by a UK employment tribunal, a court, to have unfairly dismissed an employee and has been ordered to pay that individual £1.1 million. And five years on from that judgment, the FCA can't make a case that based on this obvious evidence of detriment to a whistleblower, it, I just find it very surprising.
0: But this isn't the only time you've reported on a bank uh, apparently breaking CISC 18, is it?
1: No, it isn't. So more recently, the case of Helenius versus, and I hope I've corrected that correctly, versus Wells Fargo is a case I covered in 2021. It also raises the questions about the FCA's policing of whistleblowing rules, their own whistleblowing rules, this is. During that employment tribunal, two senior managers admitted under oath that they did not know what CISC-18 was or is. If you allow me a moment of geekiness, um, CISC-18 says that all managers supervising UK employees, regardless of where they are personally located, must be trained in CISC-18. So um, you had two senior managers admitting they hadn't been trained. Should be a simple case for enforcement, Um, again, but again, nothing. As with RBC, there has been no public uh, notice of enforcement, and neither the banks nor the FCA will say if an investigation is ongoing. I'd just like to touch on one more case um, before we move on, um, if I may, Alex. This is not an, intri- an employment tribunal case, but rather one that's going to be heard in the high court at the end of this month. Ian Peace, who was head of sterling credit trading at Bank of America Merrill Lynch, is suing the bank for psychiatric harm he suffered after raising concerns on a number of compliance and regulatory points. This case has taken some time to come to court and to date, all that's in the public domain is Pierce's particulars of claim from November 2020 and the bank's defense filing from June 2021. The only other thing to mention about this case, at this point, is that last month, Mr. Justice Ritchie ordered Bank of America to hand over any documents it had in relation to the claimant's whistleblowing reports. Pierce has a letter from the FCA saying that his disclosures led them to take action, and it's a procedural thing. But anyway, that's worth noting. And Just finally to say Bank of America is defending the claim, although it hasn't responded to my most recent request for comment.
0: Do we have uh, a sense of the number of whistleblowers who believe they have suffered harm?
1: The FCA is not very forthcoming on this type of data, despite its warning firms not to psychologically harm their employees back in 2019. Um, what I have managed to piece together from FOIs, that so Freedom of Information Act requests, is that hundreds of people have reported that they have been mistreated by their employers to the FCA in the last few years. The FCA could actually very easily report on this data without my having to FOI it. And I'll just explain how it could do that. So the majority of people who make protected disclosures to the FCA use the FCA's own reporting form. And there's a box on that form which says, "Have you suffered detriment?" So the FCA um, so f- think for the last eighteen months, it's been reporting quarterly data on whistleblowers, a-, a limited set of data. So they could very easily add that to that's that you know how many people have made protected disclosures, How many people who've made protected disclosures, have reported they've suffered detriment? That could very easily become another data set that they produce quarterly. And there's also another box on the form which says, have you reported this elsewhere? So you would also be able to build up a picture of how many whistleblowers report first internally before they come to the regulator. And why does that matter? Why would that be an interesting data set? Not just for me as a journalist, but for actually, you know, checking what's going on here. Well, the FCA actually hasn't reviewed the Ciska 18 and how it's been implemented and and used in firms um for for years now so you know that data set might indicate where they could where they could start um you know I did ask Ashley Alder, um, who is the chair of the FCA, um, if the board was happy with the way the FCA dealt with intelligence from whistleblowers and how supervisors handled whistleblowing, Last month, I also asked Steve Smart and Theresa Chambers. They replaced Mark Stewart as they're they're the co-directors of enforcement at the FCA. And I asked them the same question two weeks ago. I have not had a response, but you know who knows? I mean, this could be an area for the FCA's internal audit to 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 look at. We know how those arrangements are working um, between protected disclosures coming into the FCA and supervisors challenging firms on the evidence they've been provided with
0: be a good place to start, wouldn't it?
1: I'm Kim Vanell. Join me every morning for a roundup of what's happening at home and around the world. From the front line in Ukraine. Extraordinary how these people adjust and uh, even laugh when you take cover. To the heart of US politics. When Trump said that he expected to be arrested, it seems like he was trying to get ahead of the story. We bring you everything you need to know in 10 minutes. For your essential daily briefing, follow Reuters World News wherever you get your podcasts.
0: The UK's whistleblowing law is 25 years old, but how does that compare with other countries? And is there any chance of an update? I mean, presumably that's going to be difficult in the the fag end of a conservative government with 12 months to go, little little prospect perhaps of uh, getting anything on the statute book, but maybe afterwards if there is a change of government.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I will do your first point and then come to your second point, Alex, um, if if that's okay. So um, Tom Devine, who is the legal director of the US-based Government Accountability Project. So he um, has been working in the US system for 40 years. Um, He described two weeks ago at a conference I attended, he basically described the UK's law as very weak. I mean, when PETA was introduced back in 1998, it was a kind of the first of its kind or very nearly the first of its kind. Loads of people wanted what the UK had, etc. But now it's it's very out of date and it's it's very weak. The government is reviewing it or in the first phases of reviewing it. Kelling Holleringrake, who's a business minister, um, who was very vocal on the importance of whistleblowing while a backbencher um, and protecting whistleblowers. He launched a call for evidence, which I think finishes next month. And that's basically, you know, asking people how we fix it, asking whistleblowers about it. you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a call for evidence. So it's very wide as you would imagine. So he spoke at the conference I would just mentioned that, which was the 30th anniversary conference of the UK's uh, charity in the UK called Protect, which, which supports whistleblowers in making allegations or people who are, th- sorry, protected disclosures, not allegations and people who are thinking about, you know, uh, or you know, in that process. Anyway, um, he, he said at the conference that, um, that he underscored that regulators have a role to play in making sure they take concerns very seriously. So, you know, refer the FCA to that statement and that nothing was off the table when it comes to reform. But as you said, you know, we are 15 months at best away from a general election at most, sorry, at maximum away from a general election. Um, and so, I mean, nothing requiring primary legislation is realistically going to get done. Protect also had Justin Maddows, um, who is the Labour Shadow Business Employment Rights Minister, so Shadow Minister rather, um, and he addressed the conference as well. And he covered this, many of the same areas as, as Rick and said, you know, that uh, Labour is committed to um, fixing employee rights and they have an employee rights bill or act um, ready to go in their first hundred days. So. I guess watch this space. You know, whoever is in government in eighteen months' time has committed to reform. But just with that in mind, basically people have been drafting bills and draft clauses for legislators, and there are two draft bills. And I'll include the the links in the podcast. But I just want to mention a couple of things about one of those uh, two draft bills, and that's the bill from Protect and the. Whistleblowing charity I mentioned earlier. So um, it basically updates the UK law because if we hadn't left the EU when we did, and um, when the sort of the guillotine came down for the laws that we would ex- adopt and the laws that we wouldn't, um, the whistleblowing, EU whistleblowing directive ended up on the wrong side of the guillotine. And the EU's bill is now considered sort of the leading light and, you know, in a very key respect. And that is that it kind of flips the burden for employers so if somebody has spoken up internally at all performance reviews and promotion discussions the employer is required to evidence that they have not adversely treated that individual because of their their speaking up or whistleblowing and so that's it's really quite a significant change there which hopefully would Im- will embed in a mindset within organisations that that it is not okay to mistreat people who have raised in good faith raised concerns with their employer um about regulation and compliance you can also raise whistleblowing concerns with with journal with the media with your mp there's a number of reporting um organisations but both bills want a kind of person to sit above that or a body to sit above that to just actually make sure that those so, in in our example, the FCA is actually protecting whistleblowers and doing using the law in the right way, and and so that's just one other thing I wanted to raise.
0: Uh, just finally, are we going to see multi million pound payouts in the UK, like uh, you know, already happens in the U- US?
1: Interesting one, this, and it's always one that I try to steer away from as a journalist because I report on the law and how it's working. And regulations and how they're working and not, you know, whether people should become multi-millionaires because they've raised a concern with with a regulator. But uh, Tom Devine, who I mentioned earlier, so 40 years of experience of the of the US system, he is actually not a fan of those multi-million pound payouts. In fact, he believes that rewards are fueling the mistreatment of whistleblowers and damaging the public's perception of whistleblowing. Um, so I'll just Leave you with that. somebody that's familiar with the u s. system, which was often referred to by people who want to change the u k. system uh, as as an exemplar, whereas Tom, who works in the u s. system, very much feels that the EU system is the, the, the one we should actually be looking at. i think I think there is a difference here, though, between rewards and restitution. Kevin Hollingrake um was at an event at Parliament, which myself and Rachel attended, um which will will my colleague. Um, on regulation talent we attended and um, reported on. And he said at the time, he talked about, um, he used the term restitution. And I think that's maybe a better way to, personally, I think that's maybe a better way to look at this. I mean, if you you blow the whistle in financial services, in all of the cases I've covered, it's career ending. Okay, so you will not work in financial services again. And people in financial services are paid a lot of money. So if your career is ended, then... You know, if you're being put in a situation, to of restored situation, then that has to play a part as to does um, the majority of people who I have dealt with as whistleblowers have been psychologically damaged by doing the right thing. And so I think maybe there should be, that will have to be factored into, but there are far more knowledgeable and far wiser people than me who can work all this out, Alex.
0: Well, that seems as uh, good a point as any to leave it. Uh, Thank you very much, uh, Lindsay. Thanks, Alex. That's it for this week's Compliance Clarified. Your feedback is important to us, so please give us a rating on your podcasting platform of choice, or you can get in touch directly. Our contact details are in the show notes. For more information about regulatory intelligence, Please search for Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence or check the show notes for a link. Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence.